you'll just have to bear with it. None of those scriptures or anything up on that overhead has to do with what we're actually doing here. Um, I don't know why I forgot that, but I'm actually going to talk to you, or I'm going to. The message is going to be on the principles of obedience to God. And I just found a couple of them here in the story of the life of Joseph. I want to share them with you guys. Um, I want to read here in Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 5, and then I'll pray. Uh, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39, verse 1 through 5. The story of Joseph I find to be the uh, most amazing, one of the most amazing stories in all of the Scripture because it's one that shows how God can infinitely be involved in our life and probably in ways that we can't see. And when it's all played out, you see the remarkableness of God's great plan. And I think that out of... Uh, all the stories in the Bible, I think every one of us can glean some very heartwarming uh, strength through that in different times in life. Because we all go through different times and seasons where it feels like we feel forsaken. We feel like uh, the devil has just gotten control of the wheel of life and we're missing it for some reason. So I think the story of Joseph is amazing. Are you all there at Genesis chapter 39? Yeah. I see a couple heads. I don't hear any pages turning. And so again, I just want to remind you, I'm, I'm grateful for any amens that you have out there, even in the back row. You can still hear them up front. So share whenever you want to. Please just let, let me know that the word is coming through. Uh, it's the principles of obedience to God. I actually wanted to put a different title, but I couldn't come up with another one, so I left it at that. <laughs> Um, Genesis 39, 1-5. through 5. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was, he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house. And all that he had, he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house, that all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in the house and in the field. So the, the little bit of the background of the story, well, let me pray first and then we'll go there. Father, thank you today that we get to receive from the Holy Spirit your word. Father, I really want to pray that this would impact every one of our lives. Jesus, this was not just put here by uh, accident. It was here intentionally and on purpose so that we might know how to live for you. So, Father, today I want to pray for that precious anointing. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would work in us the truths from this Scripture that apply to our lives individually and that speak to us about the enormity of your Word and the reality of who you are. God, I don't want to miss an opportunity in my life. And I don't want us as the church and the corporate body here today to miss the opportunity to hear from you. Jesus, will you open our ears to hear well? Lord, open our hearts to receive it well. God, take us, Lord, into the next phase and season of life with this in hand. And show us, Lord, some of the hidden truths God, that are oftentimes missed, but is such an important part of life with You. Jesus' obedience never came necessarily easily, sometimes under the greatest force of trial and difficulties. And yet, Lord, the people of God have maintained a faithfulness to You in the midst of that. And Lord, all the more showing some of the beauty and the wonder of what obedience really looks like. And I pray today, Lord, that whether we've realized it or not, that obedience becomes just a little more beautiful to each one of us. And Lord, I pray, step us 
on a deeper level of what that looks like, even, Lord, when we've been discouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I noticed here in this portion of Scripture was that the Lord had prospered him, and then he moved from that time of his everything he touched turned to gold. Everything Joseph did was blessed by God. It was like, you know, we've been trying to grow a garden recently, and it was just like as if you didn't water it, you didn't weed it, and you still had this produce. It's almost like that's what his life looked like. Is that it was is as if not that he had no effort, but it wouldn't matter if he hardly put much in it or not. God intended to bless everything that Joseph did. But then you see this side of it, and then there I was kind of ca- captured by it's just right after this that he goes through a tremendous trial and then is brought in and taken to prison for something he did do. I'm like, Lord, that just seems like a waste to me. Why why all the it's almost like he got his moment of fame and then all of a sudden it all went away. And for most of us, it feels like the whole point of God blessing our life is to make Jesus known through us. So as long as people get to know how good God is by the extravagance of His grace and mercy in my life, then people are going to want to serve Him because of what they've seen happen in me. So when I go to work and the boss is pleased with everything that I do, it's easy to... I mean, I mean, you see this in the story. It says that the Egyptian's house, an ungodly man, is blessed as a result of being having Joseph in his life. And Joseph is like no other slave. He's a slave, but he's living like he is actually one of the overseers of the house. Like what slave gets that opportunity? So everything is blessed. And then he goes to prison right after this. And I, you know, I think about this and I want to think about some, I think we need to erase from our minds that the real goal of God is so that people will look at your life and say, I want to run to God because of what I see. Now, I won't say that there's not a piece to that that's important and that God does that, but I think that that's what we propel. So what we're really trying to do is feed people off of the glory that's produced after the trial, not the importance of what the trial produces in us. So I I wouldn't begin to tell you that how hard it would be to recommend. I think you should become a Christian. I think that you should... Or we could even just say it like this, this is my job, this is what I was doing, kind of like I was telling you about last week about working on my car. How many of you would be compelled to go and get in the car and work on that car with me, having told tell you all the tragedies and struggles that I went through, how many of you would be moved to do it? Like, I'm just ready to go. If you just tell me all the struggles you go through, I'm ready to. As a matter of fact, a lot of times we're turned off especially if a Christian tells us the pain that they're dealing with in the moment. If anything, we feel compelled by our, our good life, right? That I'm doing well. I want to tell you about how just having faith in Jesus is, is what you need. And you know what bothers me? i, I got to get a little bit real. I feel like that one of our problems is, is that we take what we know about God and we allowed the cliche to get in place of the actual comfort that somebody needs. As long as I can share with you the cliche, that means you're a Christian, you believe the cliche, and that's enough to get you through the trial, right? But that's not true, and most of us know that, but we do that. And when we're on the other side of the trial, we forgot what it was like to be in your shoes. So Joseph is, I think in the picture we're seeing what God can put one of those who love him and serve him, what he can put him through and what he's going to do through it. Now if you look at the whole story of Joseph, you get a grander picture that this isn't Joseph's trial just for Joseph's benefit and his well-being. 
You know, one of the things, I, I preach it, and I'll say it a lot, but I believe that God wants to mature us in His kingdom. So He takes us through trials to mature us. But we end it as if that were the ultimate goal that God had in mind, rather than that God is making a bigger setup in, in essentially, kind of like we talked about last week, was, why me, Lord? How did I get this? And, you know, Joseph later on gets to be uh, Pharaoh's right-hand man. As a matter of fact, I think Pharaoh is more Joseph's right-hand man because Pharaoh's like, do anything that he says, and if I tell you to change that, then that's it. But he's pretty much just saying, I'm supposed to be the one in authority, but Joseph's the one who's going to guide you all. Well, that day looks a whole lot different than this day. And so it's easy to just fill the room with praise when all is well. But when I'm going through something, can I praise Him? Is the point that we're trying to make is your purpose is to make sure that you say the praises even if you don't feel the praises. Even if it's not registering with you in the moment. Are you missing the point of the trial because you're not singing in the fire? Is that really the point, is to sing in the fire? I think a lot of what God does is reduce you down to the place you can't sing anymore in the fire. Because there's something about when I can still produce something, when there's still a little bit of strength left in me, I miss the point of what God is doing. God isn't trying to make me the better James. Like I was working with a guy a while back, and it was interesting when I was working with him, and I saw something drastically different in his way of seeing life as, as was my own. And in his view, life was about self-improvement. Well, I'm not so sure that Christianity is not about self-improvement. Jesus came to save a sinner and, and improve the sinner. So is that really what God's doing? Or really, when it's all said and done, God is behind the scenes magnifying his beautiful name. He's just making Himself known. So when it's all done, what we're trying to do is, what's the fastest way out of this trial? And what is it that God is doing to magnify His name in the midst of this? Joseph still held the power of God's blessing even when he went to prison. But uniquely, he still was in the trial. He was still there. I find it unique in the story of Joseph that it doesn't talk about how he complained to God about all his difficulties. How he got into the emotional stress just like all human beings and that emotional stress just drug him down. The anxiety and the frustration of being where he didn't feel like he should be. The missing his family and his father and locked into this lifestyle. It doesn't read of any of that. It makes me wonder, did Joseph almost flawlessly live out his faith? I don't know. I would love to think that that were the case, but I think that the Bible alleviates that because it's not the point. It's not the point of, is it hard or is it easy? So here's one thing I, I think is important. God takes special care to forge character rather than reputation in the ones He has called out. If some of us have gone through things in life the reality is you lost reputation through this, the, the thing you went through. You're not as much a notable Christian as you were before that happened. There are certain people in this community that have lost faith in you because of, and you've gone through that. And now it's, it's like it's this hanging on struggle that if you could just do it all over again, I would have said this differently. I would have behaved myself the way God wants me to. I would have been the angel that I know inside of me is there. It just wasn't that day. And now this struggle and reputation is hanging there. And you wonder, in a sense, how God is going to work that testimony out when it's pretty much kind of destroyed through this loss of reputation. But what He does is, instead of making reputation the focus, He deals with character. The kind of person you are. When you go through struggles and you don't have a name anymore, what do you do with that? Where do you go when now there isn't a way to fix the blemishes? There isn't a way to gain the acceptance of another person. See, a lot of times what we do in our faith is we try and say, 
The, what God's going to do is He's going to now harmonize. He's going to take you from positions of being defamed and now make you famous or honorable so that people want to serve Jesus. But when you really look at Jesus, it says in, in Isaiah 53 that it was His body was marred more than any other and that there wasn't anything about what you saw that made Him desirable. That made Him desirable. If the kingdom of God is about sacrifice, if the kingdom of God is really about dying to self and dying to personal pleasure and dying to your own ambitions, if that's what the kingdom of God is about, many, many people don't want to follow Jesus because I don't like the idea that it takes away from me. I want the Jesus that gives to me. But yet you look all over the Bible and it's just painted with sacrifice. It's painted with men and struggle. It's painted with godly people facing obscurity and persecution like none of us have seen. And many of them went, they died having suffered. And you wonder, that godly person, why wasn't their testimony preserved to be on earth longer? Why did they suffer and die? And so, really, we don't have much theology that has anything to paint good towards suffering, other than there must be a purpose in it. And there is. But I think that suffering is beautiful when we actually see God. Some are preserved through it. Some are actually dying. Some actually never get to recover from their suffering, so to speak. Not in this side of eternity, I guess we could say. So here's a few things I want to think about. One is this, God's special care for Joseph in the midst of this. Here's a thought about the, what the grace of God in this trial does. He awakens us in us, or He awakens us to unmerited favors and bestows great graces on us to arm us against our human infirmities and fears with such assurances that prepare us to trust Him in the dark. You know, it's interesting. God has a way of blessing us after, but He prepared Him prior to. You know, when in everything your hand touches with God blessing it, it doesn't take long when that blessing has shown you that God is with you. Why should you doubt that in the midst of a trial? But if you didn't have that prior to the thing that you were going through, Chances are you weren't aware of God in, in the good time. Now you become less aware of Him when it's difficult. So God is actually just preparing His people for the dark time. It's interesting that Paul uses the word when he talks about the fellowship of His sufferings. Like there's almost like He wanted to stay there. Like there's a place in the midst of the suffering where I'm closer to God than I would be anywhere else. I have had a few individuals in life that the way they shared their trial was their deepest and most intimate moments with God was in their darkest hour. And it was like they didn't want to run from it. They wanted to stay there because they saw, as difficult as it was on the human side of it, it was how real the Lord was in the midst of that. I think that's part of the whole thing. Is There's, there's a dark hour that comes on the saints of God. And in the midst of that dark hour, they remain fresh. They still remain holy. Nothing is taken from their life. They're not diminished in their quality of service and worship toward God. If anything, they're propelled to worship Him better. And if nothing else, what we do is we get to see who the true church is. The true church remains faithful because it wasn't designed on outcome. And the outcome doesn't matter. You don't have to have a revival to be holy. You have... Peter on one side, he gets the mighty revival and the outflow of many coming to God. And then you have Stephen on the other, he preaches and he gets killed. Both of these are dynamic and amazing men of God. And they both glorified Jesus, I think, equally. If nothing else, maybe Stephen had a little one-up on Peter because he gave his final breath in honor to Jesus through persecution. I think we underestimate what God does in the midst of this. So much so that Paul would say, I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
He doesn't, he doesn't talk about all of his ministry exploits to get people attracted. He actually talks about the things that would demote him, if anything else. And he's attracting sincerity and genuineness in the heart of somebody who honestly wants to believe for the right reasons. And if it's all about gaining something or getting something out of it for yourself, you miss the whole boat. You missed it. And so oftentimes you see Jesus doing something very similar. It's like, Lord, you finally got the crowd. You got the approval. You got the fame among people. And what are you doing? Now you're just driving them away with something you just said. And what you see Jesus doing pretty much all the time is he seems to carve out in the human heart where they are in their level of commitment to him. And it's, it's like Jesus, like, you know, the facade doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter what you say about me. It doesn't matter how you praise me. Because in the end, the deeper commitment of your heart is going to be the real praise. God's trials are designed to equip you for calling. You know, nobody's, nobody that's being honest with you is going to talk to you that ministry and ministering to others is not going to come with a great deal of stress, of struggle, of personal examination, of feeling like you're unworthy or incapable, all those kinds of things. But God has equipped you for that. Now, I've shared with a lot of you guys prior to coming to Wallowa County, I worked in a, in a junkyard. In a salvage yard, and I worked in the heat, I worked in the cold, and I I mean I got beaten up through life. I mean it was difficult. And I think I've shared before, but if I if I haven't, I'm gonna say it I'm either gonna say it again or I'm gonna share it again, or I'm gonna share it for the first time. But I remember when I went to Bible school, I was in the midst of students there, and I remember it felt like paradise to me. And I'd hear some of them talk about how they were going through and it was difficult for them, and I was like there isn't anything on earth that could be half as bad as what I just came from. And I begin to realize the value of trial. Because the value of trial makes what looks like it's hard for everybody else become flawless for you because you've learned through the midst of that to hold on to Jesus. That's all it is. Lord, I didn't have anything left over. I didn't have any praise left. I didn't have any... Uh, I, I don't have generic phrases. I don't have phrase, phraseologies to live after. It doesn't matter if I know what the Bible says. I'm conquered by my knowledge. It's not doing me any good. I'm exhausted of all strength that James has left. And still I have one thread of my life holding on to you. I'm just holding on by a thread. I don't know how I'm holding on. And I think when it's all done, you look back and you say, I think Jesus is somehow that you connected yourself to me and made me hold on. I couldn't have done it otherwise. There's no way. And when you look back on life and the keeping grace of God, you would have never exchanged those moments because you realize that your life is absolutely dependent on God and there's no other way to define that in our world. There's no other way to grasp it but to go through something of that. I want to share an inspiration for the faithful because what I see in this is people who walk through trial and stay close to God are what we mean by the faithful. You are faithful. I want to believe and I think that there are faithful right here. I want to just say I think all of you are. Now, I can't conclusively prove it, but I think so. Right? I want to share something with you. I want to say to you this. I want to... You're an inspiration to the people of God. You're an inspiration to those who are faithful and you're an inspiration to everybody you're around. You're an inspiration because you show us that God will keep us. You're an inspiration because um, you show us that broken testimonies are not meant for everybody. Seems like everybody these days has got like some place blemish in their life, in their faith, I missed it. And you know what? I'm not trying to break that. But the reality is, faithfulness has shown us that that doesn't mean everybody's going to go have broken testimonies. Also, that you're an inspiration because that in the midst of the world of uncertainty, there, are, there is really a true security. There's really a true security. And you have displayed a faithfulness and the unfathomable worth of God.
you've displayed the unfathomable worth of God. See, I think that if, if I did kind of the normal thing and I tried to say, hey, look, here's, here's all the good reasons why you should do this. You're going to be healed, and many of you have. Your marriage is going to be restored, and many of them have. You're going to have peace, and you do. And if I, if I only took that ground and I said, on that basis alone, serve Jesus, man, I'd be like, well, that's easy. If, if life is all taken care of, nobody else has that kind of security. But you, every one of you in this place could tell me that's not the way it's always been for me. As a matter of fact, some of the greatest tragedies have happened, and you're some of them. And you can say, I, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I loved Him with all my heart. I worshipped Him, and then this thing came into my life. And it felt like it ruined me, and it destroyed me, or it hurt me, or whatever. And some of us have been there. And so your journey in life, you wouldn't be able to tell me, hey, preacher, I love all the good stuff, and that's not been my life in Jesus. My life has been, Jesus has been both blessed and with trial. Blessed and with trial. And you know what I tell you? you you've lived the Christian life. You've had a partaker of what life is about, but Jesus was in the midst of that with you, I hope. And you retained your hope and faith as you journeyed through life with Jesus, as you stayed the course. Sometimes you had gone through those struggles and you didn't know if you were going to, but you're still there. And you're in this place because of the good things that God has done. And you don't necessarily feel like I've triumphed in all areas of life, but I still feel like there's one thing that's true. Jesus is still very precious to me. He's still at the very heart of it all. I love you. I love you. You're an inspiration to me. Because you show me that I don't have to have it all good in order to have the best. Things can be the worst and the most difficult, and I have got strength. I've got hope. And as I see it in you and I hear your testimonies, and you share what God has done. And I, you know, last week, one of the things, the highlights of our testimony time was just to hear, like, we were talking about kind of our own infirmities, our own struggles. I didn't feel like I did well through the week when I was working on my car. You were in your situations. And then I heard those, but then there was this dynamic of the beauty of God working His praises in the midst of that. And there's something about being able to say, hey, I don't have to hide my weaknesses. I don't have to say that, hey, I don't have times when the, the emotional struggle over something that somebody said isn't there. It's very real to me in the moment. And I don't need somebody giving me just this cliche, even if it is in the Bible, just so that they can hopelessly comfort me. What I need in the moment is, is I just need the real touch of Jesus in that moment. And you know what I think is interesting? Because I think Jesus does something very well, and He guides something very precious. And He doesn't relieve us too soon. He relieves us, but He doesn't do it too soon. And that's the question mark I think that we all have. Lord, why in the world don't You relieve me when I'm in pain? Why didn't You take care of the situation before the emotional uprise, before the spiritual declension in my life? Why didn't you just, just jump in there and protect me from this situation? <clears throat> I'm sure Joseph felt like those in certain times. I was, I was reminded of, there's other places in the Bible similarly as Joseph's story, and I'm going to read those to you. Because I think it helps bring a completion to, this isn't just one man's life. This is kind of like a theme through for the people of God. So Elijah is here one of them. I want you to look in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 4 through 8. Still waiting for the amen to come in. Either that or I've just wholly captured you and captivated you. and You, just, you can't think the amens through the captivation. I'm not sure here. Anyway. So uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 4 through 8. Elijah, again, another remarkable example of a man of God where God is working in his power but still had some trials to face in life. Are you guys there yet? Yes. Okay. Uh, 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. That's the New King James Version. And he prayed that he might die. Wow. Here's a question. Is there anybody in this place that's been there? I mean, I'm not... I think the acknowledgement of its importance applies to us. He said, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and laid down again, and the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, and the mount, the mountain of God. Now, talk about nourishment. I want, I, I want my next meal to taste like that. There's something about. It's interesting when you think about that. That it isn't the food itself. It's the grace and the strength of God helping him through it. It's there's a reason for the food. Obviously, there is. But I think that what we're seeing here is this: we see a man in his own strength falling to the pressure of what depression can really do to us. What we recognize is human weakness on display. Will, there is never enough strength to be able to mold and shape to what God needs for us. So when we look at ourselves, we know we are going to fail. But with the strength of God, we will be enabled to move forward. And all of us live those testimonies to some degree. But why is this important? Because in the highlight of life, when things are good, don't become lost in the greater reality of things. And my concern is there. And here's another one. I want to read the story of Peter. The Peter, the story of Peter, because God supplied for Peter also. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and 29 through 30. 31 and verse 33. You're like, what? What here? So Acts chapter 4, just go to verse 13, and we'll read from 13 to 17, and then we'll just go from there. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Okay. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. How about you guys? They had just marveled that they had been with Jesus. They were unlearned and ignorant men. There's no way, and they're just with Jesus. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a noble, notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So you read this part, they're threatening them. They're threatening them with such severity that they intend to get them to, uh, to cater to that or to give in. And they're hoping that the fear of that will stop them. But here's the prayer and blessing. And so I think this is the 29 through 31 and 33 here. Now when they, yeah. So now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized they had been with Jesus. So we're, I guess we're going to... Huh, did I repeat that for some reason? Yeah. I'm going to go find where I left off, at least that part. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so then he prays uh, for indeed that a notable miracle had been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and he cannot deny it. Now, now Lord, look on us. This was his prayer. And on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal the signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So here's something I think I want to say. I think many of us lack the maturity for God to work in our lives in this way. Because we're all about improvement, self-improvement, image. I think a lot of what we see in our culture right now is churches that look dynamic because we can make them look dynamic. We can make them look powerful. We can, we've found how to get a crowd to come and be a part of it, and we've learned how to manage a crowd as well as anybody else. And we've learned how to do that, and we call that good leadership. And what we're missing sometimes is this. There's a finer ingredient in what we're talking about, the Peter's life. Interesting, Peter says, I don't have silver, and I don't have gold, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And it, what bothers me is this, and this is just the preachers talking, but I'm getting on my own pedestal. You see TV programs, and I'm not saying that they're all false, but I see what, one of the things that bothers me is we find a way that we got to promote the miracles of Jesus by making them famous, but yet Jesus didn't do that for himself. we got to make it so publicized that people will spend more time hoping for a miracle from somebody else and a demonstration from it and somebody who doesn't have it. They just know how to put a display on. Notice that Peter, when the miracle happened and the man that was lame in the temple, and he's rising up and he's walking, and they, they begin to look on Peter, and Peter said, why do you look on us? As though by our own power or holiness, this man stands here before you whole. Peter knew the quality of this miracle meant that he couldn't take claim. It wasn't on him. Now, he had the power. The power was given to him, but he can't claim it as his own. It's God giving it. Every time something happens, it's God demonstrating it. So I want to say this, that some of the blessing means that some of us have to go through our trials with more grace. If we want a deeper blessing of God in our life, we have to face it with more grace. We also have to face it with more recognition of Jesus Christ himself. Now, I think we all go through trials differently, but one of the things that I happen to notice commonly is this. When somebody goes through a trial, you see embitterment, you see distrust, you see anger, you see that the way that we are in our homes, it all of a sudden has these blemishes all over it. And then eventually we get through our trial, and now we're praising God again. But I want to say, I think that God has a plan for his people that we don't have to go through trials bitterly and struggle through them constantly. We can struggle with the fact that I'm not strong, but it doesn't mean that I have to give out of my flesh in the midst of the trial. Now, here I want to say this. If God can get us spiritual enough to pray, to be revived, and in a good situation we can do well, then why can't we do it in our trials? Why can't we do it when people are not good with us, you know? Why can't we do it? And I will say, you know, I'm not going to put myself on the top of the pedestal because I'm not going there. But I don't think it's humility just to say, well, I'm just admitting my human weakness every time I fall into a trial. Yes, you have human weakness. But I think the idea is this, is I'm not admitting that a lot of times that God could have kept me through it, and I was the one, the unwilling party here. I was the unwilling party. 
I was the one that constantly complained. I was the one that fought everybody in front of me. I knew what God wanted of me, and I decided to put that all aside and just be the angry, bitter person that I chose to be. And on the end, God got me out of it, and I feel like the grace of God fed me through it. But I didn't leave anything in the midst of the hardship. I didn't leave a legacy of faithfulness and love for Jesus in the middle of that. And that's what I think produces the power of the Spirit in the life of a believer is when they stop letting their trials be seized with constant the infirmities of their own flesh. And they learn to trust God in the midst of it. They learn to surrender in the trial, in the fire, in the midst of it. See, Peter was a very different man kind of before this. You see him doing some of the Peter stuff. And now you're seeing Peter be less that same Peter because the Holy Spirit is the same Spirit keeping him in the trial is the same Spirit moving him in the revival. One of the last points to this, I gave you one, and you're like, okay, here's the second one. It's not going to be as long, but it's still a really important one, is that we see in the life of Joseph that he's innocent and condemned. He's innocent and condemned. All of us want to believe that if I'm going to be innocent, then I shouldn't be condemned. The whole point of being innocent is to keep me from being condemned. And I think that's true. I don't think the design that God has is to condemn his people because this isn't God condemning. He wasn't condemned by God. He was condemned by the world. The testimony of the righteous is that they are righteous and innocent to the place the world is now being condemned. See, the, what condemns the world is that the, the righteous live a righteous life. There isn't anybody who can do practice hypocrisy and let the righteousness of God condemn the world around them. It doesn't happen. So when you look at Jesus' life, he was innocent to the point of death. And so you see here, Joseph is innocent, and yet he's being accused falsely. And I think we missed the point of this is what I find Christian character fall at the point when now I'm being condemned, but I wasn't wrong. In our homes, we could practice it. We practice it with other people. But I was right, and yet you still are condemning me. And we lose our Christian character there. But capture the value of what is happening in Joseph's life through him being innocent and yet condemned. In Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 5, and then 16 through 21. Genesis 39, verses 1 through 5, and 16 through 21. See, I had to really capture this for myself because I was like, my whole design is to be innocent so that I would be admirable that I would be accepted, not that there would be rejected. And I'm not trying to capture the idea of being rejected, but I think what, again, if we're looking at the reality of what Christians are actually going to go through, Jesus said that the world will hate you because of your connection to me. Interesting, Jesus is making that your actual commitment, your your innocence is what's going to actually have the hatred of the world. Joseph is experiencing something Jesus said later on. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there and the Lord was with Joseph. We already read that. The Lord had given him favor. Let's skip a little bit further ahead. He made him overseer in his house. Okay, so then we have, I think this is the 16 through 21 part. <laughs> so so he kept his, I think this is verse 16. Um, I'm just reading it out of my notes on this one. So he kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought to us, came into me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard these words, which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did 
to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. I think Joseph behaved himself toward the Lord in the midst of it. But this is the thing. He was still condemned for it. God allows for condemnation of the innocent to protect the integrity of the gospel. To protect the integrity of the gospel. See, we're not protecting the gospel because we failed and we went back and asked for forgiveness. Now, I know this is a huge divisional piece to this, but it's really important that I make a distinction here. Because this is not to say to Christians or anybody else, if you sin or that you're going to live a sinless life, I'm not trying to go there. But what I am trying to do is, is what I believe to regard what is at the heart of every real Christian, and that is this. I don't intend to live in sin. I don't intend to fail of the grace of God. I'm not looking for an escape hatch or, a, what would I say, a comfort clause when I miss the mark. That's not, in your, that's not in your vocabulary. That's not in your mind. And so because of that, what we're... Because that's the integrity of your heart, you live that life. You live the life of innocence because your heart is attached to God. Not looking for the escape clause, but looking for how can I be faithful even though I see the urgency and the struggle of my human nature. You're running toward Him. You're drawing toward Him in the, in the, the best that you can. You're using every strength you have to draw from the source because you know your weakness. You know how prone you are to fail without the strength of God on a daily basis. And it's because of that that you're innocent. And rarely do you live a life that people are going to look at and, and, and condemn. They're not going to condemn your common behavior because they know that it's born. your behavior is born out of an attitude of sincerity. You're like, you mean I'm innocent? Like I haven't sinned at all? I don't think you sin a lot. I hope not, right? It's not a common thing. I would say there's mistakes in judgment. I'm like, okay, I had a bad judgment. Had I known, I would have done better. But the reality is, is that you're flawless in the heart and your attitude begins to develop based on your heart. So this is what protects the integrity of the gospel. When we start moving away from this and we start making Jesus' cross an excuse clause for every sin that somebody doesn't want to deal with, or an excuse clause for any kind of behavior outside of honesty and a policy of absolute love for Jesus, then we're destroying the integrity of the gospel on the basis of our own life. And it's not just by what you live, it's that the intent of your heart is not to protect and honor. So are we living in that day? We're living in that day. We're living in a day today where people come to churches with the intent to find the element of the grace of God to be the proponent for human weakness, not the thing that helps move them toward God. This relates well to the freedom that I was talking about before because our freedom is an understanding. There's a value in the intrinsic beauty of what we're going after. Every good relationship, I believe even in our relationships with our spouses, has this peace that has to protect our unity with one another. And I, I love that development that happens with my wife and I because there is, you know, none of us have been exempted from difficulties in our marriages. But what protects it is this, is that the intent of my heart is always to come back to the oneness of my marriage, what its intent was to be. If I failed, that, was, that wasn't my intent to fail. It wasn't my excuse clause. So what, what, do we, what do we do? We come back and apologize toward one another. Because we realized, I'm, my apology is the sincerity of, I never intended your harm. I only intended your good. Then when we live in those joyful moments, which I experienced this week, and you experience those warm and heartfelt moments with your spouse of what unity looks like when you're guarding integrity. What unity looks like when we're guarding integrity. 
I can't. I can't be unified with somebody who professes the same name. You can't be unified with somebody who, but has a whole different intention toward. The intention to use Jesus as it gets into the culture and it finds its way into many churches and in, in many circles of fellowship, what you'll find is this. Why is it that I can't unify with them? Why is it it seems like we can't even get together? What is the problem here? Well, that's the problem. And it doesn't take long before you realize oftentimes in conversation, I hear you talking about forgiveness. I hear you talking about the grace of God. I hear you giving all the theology that I believe in. But you're misusing it. You're not really receiving it for the value of what it is. And it kills me because why? Because that's not my heart. I can't do that to him. And so when somebody with the the motion of integrity to guard the gospel is there, what happens is we get condemned because you're trying to just protect with integrity. You're like, I don't, I wouldn't do that. Or you even say it point blank. You're wrong in that decision or that choice. And now all of a sudden you're no longer popular in their sight because you're actually proclaiming the faithfulness of the gospel with the integrity of heart to guard it. And so where we miss it is I'm protecting it, but I'm not guarding it with integrity. And that's why I'm struggling so badly or others are too. Is there hope for all of us? Absolutely. But until we come to those realizations that oftentimes the lingo isn't really the disguise for what's really going on in heart. So in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5 and verse 12, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our inequities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus carried our weight upon him, he suffered in our place. And I think it's really important because you see the condemnation of the innocent. You see that actually God grafted the whole gospel in that there had to be a perfectness. There had to be an innocence to the life of Jesus to show and validate the greatness of God's love for us. See, Jesus couldn't have failed in one point because it would have devaluated and devaluated the whole entire gospel. It would have made it with any one blemish in that moment. It would have taken away when it says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, when it tells us that God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the whole of the value of it, the beauty of it, is the innocence of Jesus. The purity of the One that we love. And that's what strengthens our union to Him is because we know He didn't fail in one point. We know that He was perfect And the value of it, why we hold on to it, while it's more than anything else we know in the world, is because we know that there was no flaw in his life. There was no flaw in his life. And that same flawless Jesus is holding me in his hands. And he wants me to hold on to him and receive from him. I love what he says to the Samaritan woman at the well. He said, if you had known who it is, who I am, you would have asked and I would have given. I would have, you would have asked. If you had known, if you get beyond just the formality and you just get into the, the, the reality of who I am, when you capture me, when the Spirit of God gives you revelation that you can't get any other way than that God opens that up to you, and you may be spending time on your knees in the struggle of an hour spent, but that one sweet moment, that one sweet release, when you've just had a release with Jesus, that redefines, and that moment in that flawless, 
perfect Jesus in His presence, touching me, ministering to me, and all of that, all recreating inside of me the James that's there, the other, the, the Troy that's there, the Caleb that's there, is recreating the person. And I'm not the person that I was when I step into the presence of Jesus. And I'm never going to be the same person after I leave the presence of Jesus. This flawless, perfect Jesus has nothing but perfection for me to hold on to. And what are we doing but going through our trials holding on to Jesus? In the end, I think this. The only thing that value is of value in life is what makes you look more like Jesus and gets you closer to Him. That's the only thing that has value in life. And so if, in all of us, our admission is, when I go through trial, I'm so much closer to Jesus, then maybe the rest of our life should be about having trials. should be about struggle. Now I know that that can't truly be the case because we're just going to let go somewhere in the line. But the reality is, trial is beautiful. Suffering is glamorous. It's wonderful. When you hold on to Jesus, when you know Him in the midst of it, it's wonderful. It's actually peaceful. Inspiration for those who have maintained integrity. So I just want to share this with you guys because I know that there are testimonies in this place that you can say, I've been there. Pastor, I've been there. And I love to share about those times when the grace of God kept me in those danger zones in life. And so I believe just you've maintained integrity. You've maintained it. You've stayed the course. You've had the trials. You've had the difficulties where you could have compromised and you didn't. You've remained faithful to Jesus. And there's times where you say, I've had blemishes in between. But what about the times you didn't? What about the times you held on with precious strength and held on with all your might and let Jesus have his place in your heart? What would that look like? It looked glamorous. It looked beautiful. And here's what I want to say. Is your commitment to keep your conscience pure is showing us all how wonderful the gospel really is. Even when your innocence was tested by false accusation, you didn't retaliate to emotional insecurities. That's a big deal. Or walk the line in giving a new judgmental prejudice based on the pain of being treated wrong. See, what makes you beautiful, what, what inspires me about your life, is that I've seen some of the places that you got tested. Or you told me about some of the situations you went in. And you know what came out of that? I don't hear you talking bad about that person. I don't, I don't hear you sharing about how profusely bitter you are toward there's something beautiful about how you share what, what Jesus has kept you from. And it's like you didn't let go of that. And the beauty of, of Joseph's testimony, why I love it so much is because when he's in the end of it, and he's being reunited with his brothers, the same ones that sold him into slavery, that put him in a position to experience slavery, to be imprisoned, all the struggles that he went through. And yet when he looked at them, he said, it wasn't you. It wasn't you that put me here. It was God that sealed the deal for me. God put me through here. God allowed me to go through the slavery. God, that's the beauty of the testimony that has the mark of integrity in it. You know what trial is all about. You know when you're facing the storm. You know how to get through the storm. And because of that, you have kept a testimony in that. And you've kept it for me and you've kept it for others. And you've kept it there because you showed to us how wonderful it looks to be faithful to Jesus and to have Jesus at the end of that saying, He strengthened me all along the way. And I didn't fail of the grace of God. Because He held me, I held on to Him, but He held me. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you for what you've given to the church. Thank you for what you've given to the pastor. Thank you for what you give to this ministry. Because day in and day out, when you're tested, you live faithful. And the trial of your faith being more precious than gold, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and the honor and the glory of its appearing. You have shown me what righteousness looks like. You have shown me what God can do in a human, frail heart. 
and still make it so beautiful because it's all about Him. It's all about Him. And thank you for doing that. I am so edified and strengthened. I am nurtured and I want to say I'm inspired to be behind this pulpit week after week because of the faithful children of God. Because of those who know what it means to love Jesus with everything within them. That you know the times of frailty. You know what it's like to be men and women of like passion and see Jesus work in your life. And you share with me some of those struggles and some of them are raw. I've shared with you some of my own. And found you still are amazing to me. You know, because in this world, there's so many reasons for us to go running around doing something else. To quit coming to church. To quit doing what like Tina's been doing and, and Julia to come here and minister to us in song and just give up because it just doesn't feel good anymore. Because sometimes the, the weight of it or sometimes the emotion of it just gets to you. And I know, I know what it means like, but I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful for to be in the presence of the people of God. I'm grateful every Sunday that I get to look at and sometimes new faces that get to be here on different occasions and different times of the week. But I just get to see that. I get to see that even when you don't make it here on Sunday, that there's different trials and things going on in life, that you're still holding on to Jesus. And you're not just giving me the words. I can see it in the product of your life. Thank you for your faithfulness to me. You know, I want to be faithful to you, but thank you for your faithfulness. Some of you give in immense measures to me. Some of it's emotional. Some of it's spiritual. Sometimes it's just undergirding the ministry in phenomenal ways. Thank you, because I know that it's protected under the harness of the integrity of Jesus. You could be doing other things. You could spend more time with family. And there's times when I feel like, Lord, I want them to spend more time with family. I'm trying to kick you out because I want you to go rest a little or whatever the case is. But at the same time, I realize that you're holding me up with the integrity of your love for Jesus and your love for the people of God. See, I think there's one very precious thing that happens in this, and I'm going to quit here after this but I just didn't get enough uh, amens to know that it was getting close to the time to quit. So I went a little bit longer. But I feel like this, when you've gone through your trial and you've held on to Jesus through that, you know what happened? You secured, you, you brought the security of God's promises and His faithfulness into your life, but you know what else you did? You made sure that you were available and healthy for me too. You walked with Jesus so that you could pray for me in my struggle. And I did the same thing for you in your struggle. And there's this likeness of human compassion and love that God has given us that just goes beyond this. And so we know that, God, you've kept me in my frailty. So when I see a brother struggle, you know, I, I've had times where somebody, man, they were insulting and they were hard to deal with in the moment. And I tell you, the truth is, humanly, I wanted to abandon you. You know, I didn't want anything anymore. I wanted that relationship to end. I don't want to go through that pain again. But because of the compassion that happened through the trial that Jesus gave me, my enemy is beautiful to me. The person who reached out to hurt me is now something different in my eyes. And I don't know, but the God gave me a more beautiful picture of that person. And you know what one of them is this? I would be no different if it weren't for the grace of God yeah. at work inside of me. I would have failed in those ways. God, if you kept me, then you can restore them. If we can maintain this, church, if we can maintain this in the spirit of our community and in this congregation, if we can maintain this closeness to Jesus and this nearness to one another because we know that He has kept us from falling prey to our infirmities. We will grow. I don't give a care about numbers, but what I would like to see is just pure, raw maturity. Raw, mature Christians. That's beautiful and wonderful. And I see it here. I see it here. Amen? Okay. I got my amen, so it's time to quit. With that said, I'm, I'm going to, in a, in a moment, I'm going to invite you. I know these services can last a while, but I think the reality is they last a while because I think God is just trying to minister to us. 
And I've learned something. When I'm in the presence of the Lord, time doesn't matter anymore. Not to me, at least. So I don't know that you share in my thoughts that way, but I think some of you do, and maybe all of you. And so we're going to give an opportunity for the Lord to just further that blessing in your life because we all need it. We all need his special strength. We're all coming back just like we always were from Sunday to Sunday, not just because we're weak, but because sometimes we're strong, but we want to stay there.